Welcome. You're listening to the Well Engaged podcast, an unscripted conversation between myself, Gareth Shackleton, and osteopath Paul Tootleman about health, well-being, engagement in life and business. We go off-piste, we go here, there, and everywhere. So strap up, buckle in, and get ready for a wide-ranging discussion about all things about life. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to Well Engaged on Lionheart Radio, 107.3 FM with uh, Paul and Gareth. Hope you're all well this morning and uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, just like I can see Paul is. And uh, hi, Paul. Say hello yeah. to everybody. Hi, everyone. How are you doing all? Well? Are you expecting a response? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is giving a pregnant pause. Yeah. No, I'm good. I'm all right. I'm a bit. I'm a bit tired. I do start to feel like now. Well, for me, it's been really, really busy the last couple of weeks. In fact, busier than it's been for probably about twenty years. So I'm really, really enjoying it yeah. and, 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 with, and getting good results too. And, uh, I guess that's fantastic for you. I guess it's not so fantastic for all of the people who have got aches and pains and. Issues yeah. that uh, are making them come to see you. So, uh, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. But you know, every, everyone's got them. It's yeah. Whether or not you're acknowledging it, or if you're right. denying it, or if you just accept the fact that that's your lot and it's always going to be like this, and life is for suffering, and then you die. If that's mm-hmm. your attitude, then you're not really going to do about it. But yeah, and usually seasonally, there's like peaks and troughs of, of, of types of patients. So it's springtime, for example, you get a lot of people with back pain because they've been out in the garden. Right. If they've not been doing anything and they've been sedentary all winter, then you're going to get a lot of people in the, in, in the spring. Well, mm-hmm. didn't really get anyone in the spring. There was lots yeah. of people in their gardens. Uh, turns out there's a lot of people struggling with back pain. <laughs> Just waiting for the doors to open. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been it's been interesting. It's it, it's been really difficult for me personally because I just I find it difficult to say no, right? It's not like it's not like I sell um, I don't know tires, and if somebody calls me and I just write, no, I'm not working today. It's like I'm not I'm not selling any tires today. Call me back yeah. on Monday morning. Yeah. Right? It's not like that for me. If people calling me up and they're in agony, do you know what I mean? And they're looking for some sort of relief. It's like almost I could say no. Call me back on Monday. <laughs> and there's just something about me that just thinks, well, if they're suffering now and I'm able to help them now and they've called me now, let's see if we can help out. Yeah. Now. And um, that's the nature of your profession, isn't it? You went into this profession because that's the way you are. That's your makeup. Uh, you want to help people and you want to help people get out of suffering. So consequently, I'm taking on a lot more than I thought of, but well, a lot more than I had planned to. Mm. And so consequently, now it's sort of getting back to those sort of feelings where you, know, you could have a monster day. I mean, in a good way. When I say monster, I mean in a good way. Right. And you're busting problems and you're finding the causes and you're motivating people to fix them. And 
you're getting good feedback from people all the time and it's like yeah it's, it should be amazing and of course you make quite a lot of income if you're doing a good job like that as well mm-hmm. so everything about that day you should be like celebrated mm-hmm. at the end of it and then you're tired and you've, you've missed dinner with the family and and, and there's still the dishwasher to be loaded up. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it doesn't feel good. So getting back to being busy, for mm. me, busy isn't good more. I don't mind having loads and loads and loads of patience and loads of work to do, but just getting back to being busy kind of feels like, uh, but it's pre-lockdown. You know, you had this thing about if your goals were sort of materially or driven for the sake of having more it's like mm-hmm. it's never enough mm-hmm. at some point you become you know either demotivated or psychopathic right and i suppose without realizing it the goals have completely changed yeah and what uh, are your goals just be- now well if you're talking about the big pictures it's about trying to Produce better earth. Better yeah. earth, as in improve the soil, or uh, better earth, as in improve just better soil, better ground. Yeah, being able to put stuff out. You're breaking um, up there, Paul. I think we've got a bad connection. So uh, let's break for a, a song. Uh, okay. We'll put a track on, and then we'll come back in, and hopefully we'll have fixed the uh, the connection problems. Uh, back in a Back in a few minutes, folks. And welcome back. You're listening to Paul and Gareth on Well Engaged. Uh, before the, the song there, we were just uh, talking about Paul's new goals uh, as a result of lockdown uh, before the internet kicked in and, um, uh, and, and, and disrupted things. Maybe we'll come back to talk about conspiracy theories about why our internet connection's being hacked once we've talked about your goals, Paul. What's that? 5G, 5G. <laughs> People will be demanding 5G in order they can you know, have greater bandwidth so they can download Netflix in one second. So they can listen to us on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there might be. And I hope so. <laughs> If you are listening, please get in touch. Let us know. We'll pick up your email about a week later. Because <laughs> we're doing it virtually. Uh, goals. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that stand out from the goals perspective. Number one, do you remember that moment I was still at Morrison's and there was nothing in the shop and I thought I could have a million quid in my pocket and it's no good. Yeah. So since then, it's been like focusing and learning and, and starting to really build a, a goal about having, you know, the ultimate for, for us now is about finding the farm. It's about having an organic farm um, which seems really ludicrous considering I've never had a farm and I don't really know anything about farming. But the emphasis isn't on about me being a very successful farmer. It's just about producing good soil. And uh, I've always been really interested in polyphasic farming. I think it's a really, really revolutionary idea, which is weird because... Polyphasic meaning? Uh, meaning that, uh, well, you've got an idea of the crop rotation system, so you're not depleting all the nutrients from the same same nutrients from the same patch of land with time. Well, polyphasic is a bit like that. I mean, instead of crop rotation, you would rotate animals on the basis that doesn't that make them dizzy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, <laughs> swallowed the joke book this morning. That's great. <laughs> I like that. Um, based on the on the on the on the simple thing that like, chickens eat different things than sheep do, and they have different gut biomes and they produce different bacteria when they poo. Right. So the idea is you would like, for example, let chickens into one part of the of, of your field. You have sheep in another, and cows in another, and pigs in another, and nothing in another, and corn in another, and and then you just keep moving the animals around all the time. So wherever you, if you take the chickens out of one place and put the lambs back in to somewhere yeah. else, and you a little patch of forest for animals because most animals live in the, would choose to live in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, then all the animals are getting exposure to all the environments that they're designed to be in. So they're much happier. They can operate and function and behave in more natural ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all consuming organic food, right? And so you're depositing organic manure of different different types on the ground. So, you know, and then you send the pigs in. Once you put all that manure on it, then you send the pigs in and then they plow everything up and then you can just sow your crops. So there's, there's very little in the way of machinery needed. Mm. Yeah, there's no pesticides or herbicides and stuff like that. And so the ultimate uh, principle of it is that farmers don't grow crops, they grow good soil in order to make things grow. And, and, and the more I, I, I walk around and I see the farms now, the more I'm beginning to understand how it's just repeatedly extracting the nutrients from the ground. I mean, there's, there's, there's almost no rotation. Mm. Fertilizer is being given to the farmer as um subsidized fee right because they get so much of it mm-hmm. and now the soil is really just a substrate to hold the seed in and then all yeah. the chemicals that's needed for that seed to grow and flourish is, is added to it mm. and um well i just think that's wrong it's again it's another example of how human beings are sort of stepping in to take control over a natural process and i think we should be doing the opposite we should be stepping out of it and getting out of its way and um and learning how to cultivate and keep our crops better so that's that became a, a, a that's something that i've had in my, my goal system you know, probably for the last 20 years well you've talked about it before yeah i remember but um yeah i kind of drifted away from that but it's funny how the circumstances have pushed that back into the foreground and and what i really like about that is that you I don't see myself as a farmer, but I could see myself working on a farm, right? So it's not necessarily about me learning all the skills necessary to become the world's best organic farmer. Mm. It's about me utilizing the money that I can generate and investing it in something which is A, going to keep producing money and, and give people opportunity to, to work, yeah? Doing something that's wholesome and doing something that's good. And, uh, you know, even if the best thing that comes, even if I never sold any crops or made any money from it, at least if I was able to afford to be able to pay three or four people to live an organic, wholesome life, then those three or four people are switched back on again and they're, and they're doing things in a natural way. And, and then I was chatting uh, earlier this week with a patient who was talking, I've got a picture of Andrew Taylor Steele, the, the first osteopath up on my wall. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, who's that? So, I really like it when people ask that question because A, they've taken notice of it and thought, oh, I wonder what that, and B, they've been you know, confident enough to ask the question, which is difficult sometimes. Yeah. And I was explaining his, his story about how, you know, for years, and you know, really successful, revered, you know, from the academic and medical world, ego, boom. And then, you know, obviously all the tragedy that was struck him in his family. 
and then he was ostracized and ridiculed and he was broke for you know about a decade until then everyone started to cotton on to what he was doing and all of a sudden he's now making hundreds of thousands of dollars um which in you know in 1900 i don't know what that would translate to but it would be ridiculous so yeah but he didn't keep it he he, he basically he gave it all away he set up the osteopathic school uh, and he built an osteopathic hospital just so happens that within the grounds of the hospital were organic farming practices and part of the therapy was that people would have to contribute to the food that they wouldn't eat there but the food that they would be eating has been grown by the people who had already been inmates in the hospital right so there's this 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 link between keeping people in touch with the natural cycles of light and dark and seasonal growth keeping people eating locally sourced organic fruit and vegetables and naturally reared meat in the same um latitude so we're dealing in the same light consistencies and frequencies as where you come from mm-hmm. uh, wow here we go here's my dream i thought it was so novel and new but it's, it's not <laughs> only already been thought of it's already been done by somebody before so um well in, I, in a way that's a that's a good thing isn't it because there's a precedent for it you know you can point at something and go well look this is how it works it's been done before i'm not reinventing the wheel here i'm not coming up with a completely crazy ridiculous concept uh, that might not make it quite so novel and exciting because you know to you because it's been done before but um it means it's easier for people to accept which is important from a um <laughs> from a marketing point of view <laughs> which inevitably you would need in order to fill the hospital with people or the farm with people who were benefiting from it to contribute well you'd have to sit down and work that stuff out yeah, yeah right so, uh, so that's that's the direction it's all kind of going in, but I'm not in any great rush to pursue it. It's not like I have to push, 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 push anymore because the other thing I've learned during lockdown is that I wouldn't say that I felt that the world didn't have a, I didn't have a place in the world, right? It's just when you're an osteopath, you're on the fringes, right? Of society. Yeah. yeah it's always a numbers game. And people might think they know what you do, but they don't. Uh, and, and people might think they should come and see you, but they won't, right? Because our culture is, we handle the knowledge and experience and, and expertise over somebody else. We're completely incapacitated and I need you to fix me for free. Mm. And that's very different from the osteopathic model, which kind of runs alongside the medical profession and says, well, actually, you're in control of this. You've got yourself here. Right? You might think it's bad luck, but you could argue there's no really anything as luck. You, you kind of make, you can't affect what happens to you, but you can control what's going on around you to try and affect your environment in a way that you like. So if you don't want to fall off a cliff, yeah, mm-hmm. then don't walk to the edge of a cliff, right? That's what I mean, right? Yeah. Um, you can't stop yourself from tripping over, but if you don't want to fall off the cliff, it's a good idea not to trip over to the edge of the cliff, so don't go to the edge of the cliff, right? Yeah. So you're always on the fringes of society and um, it's really easy to feel isolated and, and ostracized. Um, and so marketing is like a really sort of interesting thing from an osteopath because A, everybody in osteopathy is really scared of marketing because you're either worried that you're going to be breaking some sort of law that says that you're not allowed to say that you can treat this, this or this. Right? So there's constant changes to those rules, which just makes it a nightmare. Um, and uh, you can't claim to be therapeutic. Osteopathy can't claim to have therapeutic effects. Is that what you're saying? 
there are rules and regulations as part of what is called the ASA, Advertising Standards Authority, I guess that means. Yeah. Um, and people quite often end up in trouble because of the words that they've used on their advertising. Mm. Right. And so what happens is if people, if enough people make the same mistakes, then a new policy gets drawn up that says you are legally no longer allowed to say this. Right. People change their wording and then it takes a year or two for people to realize that they're not allowed to say it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then, but then the rules change. And so what you could say today, you know, they might change tomorrow, but if you haven't heard about it and your advertising still there, then you can get, you can get fined quite heavily for that stuff. Mm. A lot of us are perhaps are apprehensive about marketing, you know, for those reasons, a lot of us pass around pencil about marketing because they're just really, really poor at it, right? Because mm -hmm. you didn't spend four years, five years studying marketing at university. You studied right. five years at university. So it's a really interesting tool that sort of, sort of lights up this possibility of this endless stream of new patients coming into your door, which would be wonderful. I mean, that's what we're all looking for, right? This endless stream of new patients or new customers that have preferably been educated about what you're doing and how you do it before they arrive right you see and you see that's that's one of the things to me i mean without well i am going to digress here but into the marketing because the word that you've used there is hope or the phrase was hopefully they are educated about what we do and how we do it and what what the benefits are and for me that's the perfect opportunity for marketing without having to use it as marketing you're not putting this splashy advert up there that says um, you know, cure your diabetes with osteopathy. You know, you're not saying that. You know, what you do is you educate about osteopathy and how it changes blood, uh, glucose control in the body um, and the impact of glucose control on diabetes. You know, and, and using, kind of using marketing to educate, but it's in a way that it's not advertising, you know, and, and then you don't fall foul of the ASA and you don't break those rules because you're not advertising it. You're not promoting it. You're educating. And that, and that sounds simple when, it, when you say it, but, and obviously you still have to be careful of the wording to not make false claims, but um, yeah, that, that's the way to, to do marketing as an osteopath. And it's the way for anybody to do marketing. In fact, marketing is education. Step one, people have got to, you know, in a very simplest way, people have got to know you're there. That's the first level of education. Um, but they've got to know what it does, how it does it, why they should choose you. I mean, it's all education. But Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So you could, you could get very, very busy uh, with all that marketing stuff. And, it, you know, at some point, I will get around to it. <laughs> at some point, I will get around to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like 20 years I've been saying that. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. But the other thing that stands out is that... How did Andrew Taylor still market osteopathy, given he was the first osteopath, there was nobody else around, he was setting, he was trailblazing, pioneering, yeah. nobody knew what osteopathy was? I don't know. But I'm going to find out. The only thing I know is that he wrote a book, didn't he? He wrote his uh, autobiography. Oh, that was after then, much a long time after. Yeah. Okay. Um, he'd also written various books that he was using to educate the students that were coming into the, the college to, to learn. 
I imagine to have earned, as you've said, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in, a, in a time when you didn't have access to the whole country, you know, because you didn't have the internet. Um, you was working very locally, I assume. So to have earned that, those kinds of sums, his marketing must have been very effective. But in the early days when he was really struggling to make ends meet, he would travel around, he would be on horseback. He was also a minister. I forget which, right. which church he was a minister for, but his dad, his dad was like a, like a missionary and he was, he, his father was never at home. He was constantly riding on his horse to different towns to give sermons. And uh, so he used to do a similar thing. Like instead of giving sermons, he used to go and, and, and treat patients. So he could just about cover the bills, if you like, that way. But the thing that kicked it all off, the thing that started to bring the big bunny in would be um, the celebrities that, that became drawn to it. Once the celebrities became drawn to it, and in those days it was Mark Twain. Mark Twain was one of the biggest advocates of osteopathy. He's written really prolifically. About, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to bring up some of Mark Twain's writings about osteopathy. Oh, yeah, that would be really interesting. You know, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, we're talking about not reinventing the wheel and not having any new ideas about this kind of stuff. Um, Andrew Taylor still has done it before, you know, in terms of the farm and the organic uh, farming. But one of the best or most powerful marketing tools that we have today is celebrity endorsement. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with the internet. Andrew Taylor still did it 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was intentional, but it's well, not. Yeah, but it went viral before going viral was the thing. Before it went viral, before viral went viral, he already got it viral. Yeah. So there's there's elements of that which are really exciting, and that sort of all kind of spells towards you know positive changes, but quite big changes that would have to be broken down and managed. And mm. and I suppose I'm just enjoying the fact that. No, I never saw, and nobody, nobody saw any of this coming, right? But I think the fact that, the fact that I've, I've gone from being really, really sort of big in terms of having multiple practitioners and multidisciplinary clinics and staff members to manage and run and all that stuff, having all that stuff early and, uh, you know, consequently, you know, making mistakes through those things, but, but learning from them, and you... you you, you come to that point where you say, right, well, do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to keep being big and busy, but not have time or energy or any kind of enthusiasm? Or do I want to, do I want to shrink back and go small and get rid of the responsibility, get rid of the, the management stress? Uh, and, and I chose at that point to go small again. And I think that was the, partly influenced by the fact that we were having kids. Yeah, when children come along, it's like you, you just know that your time isn't going to be there and your energy is going to be there. I mean, look at Boris Johnson after he has his kid. Right? He just doesn't look like the same man, does he? Um, but there's, there, there was this choice. You can either stay big and stressful, but now you've got your family. You're not going to be inspired at work and you're also not going to be much use when you get home. So mm -hmm. going small has given us a capacity, I think, to survive better during these times, for sure. And so then what do we do when we come out? Yeah. Do you want to go big again? Yeah. Or do you want to change tack and do something different? And it's like, I don't, I don't really know yet, you know, but what I'm, what I'm really pleased about, what I'm really enjoying is it feels like, although I've done zero marketing for 20 years, in a way, we're in our own bubble up here, right? Because, you know, it's, 
I'm not saying everybody in this town has been a patient, but I'd say probably half the people in this town have come through the clinic doors and whether to see me or an associate or something. Mm-hmm. So everybody knows that we're here. And when people ask, so where are you based now? And they say, are you still on Wagonway Road? So everybody knows where yeah. I was. Yeah. Yeah? Just that for some reason, nobody was, not many people were coming in through the door. Whereas now, feels like all those 20 years of, of, of not selling it, of not pushing it into people's places, of not lying to people and getting them to come back in unnecessarily, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's sort of put me in good stead, sort of put me in people's good books. It's like now they feel that they can come to me. I think, I think partly because they know that I'm not going to rip them off. I mean, a lot of patients say to me, Paul, I've never once felt, I sometimes say to people, look, <clears throat> I'm not saying this because I want your money, right? But there's things we found in the nervous system testing today, which they can, they can agree with, that says you've got to come back in three or four days time right you don't have to but this is what i would do if i was you and they're like oh it's fine if you tell me to come back in three or four days i'll come back in three or four days little devil inside me goes "Ooh, you know could, could quadruple my income here do you know what i mean um but then part of you just says, no just stick to your system stick to your testing and be honest with people and that's really the thing about this whole lockdown for me is about it's just stripped away all those veneers about people pleasing and it just allows you to cut straight to the choice cut straight to the bone and so yeah i think if i would the problem with it me if i had been in a position where i had staff and i had associates and i was getting everybody to sing from the same song sheet right because that's what you want through your clinic you don't want individuals doing things their way you want people doing it your way otherwise they can start their own clinic i would have had the wrong song sheet I would have had totally the wrong song sheet. I would, there's no way I could have written my song sheet now if we hadn't had lockdown. If I hadn't had these experiences during lockdown, I would never have got to this point. Is it the wrong song sheet or just you need different song sheets for different circumstances? Whatever, the, whatever choice we make about song sheets, the first hymn on that song sheet has to be about getting rid of your ego and getting rid of your BS, right? This isn't about you. This is about the person in front of you. It's about this aspect, this component, this facet of life that's trying to express itself and it can't because it's hit this painful period. And um, instead of trying to impress people by using, you know, the big fancy Latin Greek words and showing off all of the certificates and all of this kind of thing, which we would usually use to show people that we are a source of authority on this, right? Um, It's like, just shut up, close your eyes, get your hands on the body and feel what's going on with that person because they don't know what's going on Mm -hmm. and you don't know what's going on. So shut up, get your hands on and and just feel and, and, and let this unravel itself. And, um, and I'm finding that, it's, it's, it's more congruent, right? Because it's easy, it's easy to have ideas, right? It's easy to, to hear other people's ideas and say, oh, well, I could do that. And so you can incorporate someone else's idea into your life, into your practice, and you can start saying it. But unless you're really sort of knitting it and integrating it into actually your fabric of your existence, then there's a disconnect there. And I'm finding there's no disconnect. Well, yeah. Everything... Yeah. Everything I'm doing, patience is what I'm doing in, in my own life. Yeah. 
Right, and that's what we're all striving for, I guess, isn't it? You know, finding that, and it's not that we're, I think the word disconnect can sometimes make it feel as though we're, we're completely removed from that. You know, there isn't a, a part of us that's congruent, but it's not like that. You know, there's, we might be 98% congruent, it's that 2% that makes us feel disconnected. And, and we have to, but it's just, so it's just that closing that gap. And, and what you've done is, is make that extra 2% and, and closed it. And, and now it feels great. It what I'm wondering is, can it not be like that with associates? You know, you have to hire the right people, sure, that, that are at least a long way towards that already. But then by working with you and working with your systems and your approach, that closes the gap for them as well. Or it doesn't, and they have to leave and go somewhere else because they're just not congruent with it. And, uh, it passed up in my head yesterday. I thought, well, okay, like if we, because I've got more work than I, I ideally want, which is kind of like professional suicide. Because as soon as you start thinking that, you, yeah. you find those opportunities. You know, if there's a reason to for somebody not to come in, all of a sudden it's, they call up and they say, I can't make it today. It's like, well, you've got one person less than you would have done, but I'm still way over what I would, I'm still way over where I want to be, right? Yeah. And so the only other way to incorporate that and accommodate that is to get the associate on board and then tell them about the way that I work and then this is something you like to do. And, and then I wouldn't necessarily have to, you know, change premises. I could still work people from where I'm operating from now. It's not like we have to go and negotiate tenancy agreements and stuff like that again. But, um, so it did, it did flash up in my mind, which is, is quite exciting because I wasn't really thinking like that before. But then I guess, I guess as well, you know, that, sort of all sort of coincide it's really intertwining and really interesting how it you know having these thoughts seemingly spontaneously right but now i think back it's like well no as soon as i started like actually keeping a record and account and physically putting the money of 10 percent of everything i make goes into the pot and just mm -hmm. keep a log of it and you just keep doing that you're thinking well okay there's you know some days it might be you know, 10 pounds, some days it might be 30 pounds, some days it might be one pound, right? But as long as there's something going in, it's like a scoreboard on a, on a sporting event. As long as you just keep doing something and just keep ticking over, by the end of the game, it's all added up. But, you know, what you're thinking on the first day is like, I still don't have a clue about what I'm going to do with investing in any of this because you don't. You do. Well, yeah, I do, but there's also elements of me which are apprehensive and fearful because the last thing you want to do is is, is lose it, right? But what I now realise is it's better to have tried it and lost it, right? So that so you then are wiser the next time around, and at some point you find the right thing. But but also on that first day, you still don't know what what you should be investing in. It's only when you start to see this stuff building up, you think, well, actually, I should probably go and find out what is available to me like what what you know what do other people do when they with their, say for example their first 500 pounds what what would you do with the first 500 pounds it's like well well i'd go and buy some stocks and some shares it's like well okay what's the average rate of return on a stock or a share i think it's something like 2.2 percent yeah it depends doesn't it but um yeah i think buying a shares or buying shares is different to buying a a fund or a share of a fund, you know, where they've combined shares into one, and then the returns tend to be, you know, in that kind of region of two, three, four, five percent, maybe ten percent if you get really lucky, but or, or you're on a bull market, uh, which we're not at the moment. But um, but yeah, if you but if you buy a share, you know, if you bought shares in 
I don't know, Apple back in 1980, they, you know, the return would have been far more than 2%. But that's about understanding the market. You've got to really understand the fundamentals of that business, the fundamentals of the market that they're in. And that isn't, you know, that's real investing. Whereas what most people do when they invest in quotation marks in the stock market is they gamble. Yes. Or they, and they manage the risk of gambling by buying a fund. And the funds brought together a thousand different stocks and shares, some of which will go up, some of which will come down, and nobody knows which because they're not analyzing that particularly well. <laughs> uh, and, and so you average out the risk, and, and that's why the returns are two to three percent or five percent or whatever. Which I suppose is bad. If you had a huge, vast swathe of money that wasn't doing anything, I mean, you might as well make two or three percent on it with nothing at all, right? But if you if you were that engaged in investing, then you you'd have your money working for you in a much better way. If you've made that much money, you can afford the time to think, right? What is the the future trend? Which of the companies that look as though they're going to be the ones that to go for it? Which are the ones that have got the strong fundamentals to really capitalise upon this? Yeah. Um, and then you do what venture capital companies do, which is you know that two out of those 10 companies that you buy will do really well. Three or four of them will wipe their nose, as they, as they say. And the other three to or five to seven will tank. But it's okay because what you lose on those five that tank, you're going to mid back more than that on the two that really do well. But only if you've done your homework and you understand the fundamentals, which most people don't when they when they invest in it. Yeah. So that's the other thing that comes out is it's this new. No, I'm now. Well, it's after a month. It's amazing what you can save in a month mm. if you're thinking about it and trying. And um, it becomes clear is about how important it is to specialise. So you, know, you you can't know everything about everything but you, you make sense to, to learn about something, maybe something that you're interested in, something that you're passionate about, and something that if there are companies operating in those fields, maybe you're really passionate about computer games, right? Well, then you probably know who all the computer games manufacturers are, right? You, you've probably got an idea about some level of coding, about what's required to make stuff work, or you might understand the language, like what, mm -hmm. what memory or, you know, what kind of technological device you need in order for this yeah. to work but you'd be familiar with the language so, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah so there's like a basic level of, of knowledge you need in that area in order to have a conversation with someone else in that industry and um, if you can't have a conversation with somebody about um, petrochemicals then it's probably not a good idea to invest in petrochemicals because yeah. if you don't understand it you can't you yeah. can't really predict it so I'm now thinking what would I like to learn about what am I interested in so it's ironic, isn't it? You know a lot about health and healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it would make a lot of sense for you to invest in healthcare. Beautiful companies. <laughs> well, I had this conversation with the missus. I had this conversation with the missus last week. Uh, sorry, at the beginning of this week. And um, I feel very differently about it to her. As, as a result of lockdown, a lot of my, my, my beliefs have changed. Right? Not because I've sat down and go, right, it's time to change my mind about this. It's like, actually, you know, it's, I've totally changed my mind about smoking. Right? If people want to smoke, let them smoke. It's not for me to patronise and chastise people to stop them smoking. If people want to smoke, let them smoke. Because, you know what, I, like, I reckon if people survive world wars, right, 
and the only source of comfort and joy during that terrific occasion was a cigarette. Mm. They're a child to smoke a cigarette. And having somebody half their age come along and tell them, oh, you smoking's really bad for you. So, yeah, I know smoking's really bad for me. Guess what? So's war. And I survived it. So leave me alone and get on with it. Right? Let people do what they want to do. If they're not hurting anybody else, they don't go on with what they want to do. But also my attitude towards pharmaceutical companies has changed. Not that I agree with pharmaceuticals at all. I don't think I will ever understand that. However, well, not that I don't understand it, or what I mean is don't think I'll ever agree with it. However, what I'm also aware of is that people will always take pills, right? It doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter what anybody says. Even if somehow we manage to create a revolution and 75% of the population went natural and organic, right? You can imagine the sort of world that would create, right? Um, there's still 25% of the population going to be getting pharmaceuticals, but now pharmaceuticals are going to become the underground illegal drugs mm -hmm. that aren't licensed. Do you know what I mean? But they want them because they need them for this thing, right? So, and people are still going to be profiting massively from investing their shares into pharmaceutical companies. So why couldn't I invest my money in pharmaceutical companies? I'm not going to be damaging people that are going to get switched or turned around. You know, people are always going to take those pharmaceuticals. So I, I come to my mind, so actually, if I can invest my money in, and that allows me to facilitate you know, things like the farm, for example, which then allows me to produce even more opportunities to help people to switch people on and do it, right? And I'm just exploiting the people that are never going to see my way of thinking anyway. And then it wasn't just about the pharmaceuticals. It was about you know, any, any of these big, like I could just, I could just exploit people who suck it into the whole vanity and cosmetic industry. It's like, that's not going to stop just because, and then, and then Flores says, well, yeah, but the thing is, it's always going to feel yuck. Well, that's why I was wondering, isn't that going to feel incongruent given what you've just yeah. said about congruency? Completely. Yeah. And so, um, but I'm sat there thinking, oh man, it's like, give a guy a break. Come on, right? All I want to do is just facilitate my dreams without, without hurting people. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have to think about that one. I then thought... Quite it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because, you know, where we are, where we all are in society is in a, in a world, in a civilization in which everything is driven by capitalism. And so you have to be part of that capitalistic system to get ahead in any way, shape or form, really. Very difficult to you know, achieve your goals, your dreams of an organic uh, hospital farm if you don't have any money. And where you can get that money from, you've got to get it from a capitalist system, which thrives on generating profit. And the more profit you can generate, the faster you can achieve your goals and dreams. But the more profit you generate is the more really that you're exploiting people because all of that profit is a is value that you're taking off the top you know over and above the value that you're delivering really in a way if you want to look at it in that cynical way which i generally choose not to given my role in life <laughs> yeah. um but it, you know business can be boiled down to that you know in your terms exploitation exploitation of natural resources exploitation of people's na um, not naivety i was thinking um vanity exploitation of people's fears about health yeah so yeah then you, you you sort of jumping on the whole thing i mean that's another example of this government and the lockdown 
fiasco is um it's just how easy it is to scare people into behaving in a certain way right it's like so easy and i thought i was overstepping the mark when you remember i came i started coming out with them i was thinking what i could talk about in presentations like in network meetings and stuff to sort of you know sort of hit home the you know you don't have to take action on what i'm saying but the likelihood is if you don't act on what i'm saying this is what's going to happen and we talked about the sitting in the care home for 15 years sitting in his own feces drinking cauliflower mm-hmm. a straw you know that's how your attitude if you had that written down on your exit strategy from life go for it right because you might really like cauliflower cheese don't you? i do yeah. but if <laughs> but if you don't want to eat it every day through a straw um then you might want to sort of sit down and actually look at your health and, and, and mm-hmm. evaluate it in a way that you would evaluate your your profit and loss account or your tax return or uh, you would evaluate your children's report from school or something yeah. like that you'd make it a priority to sit down and understand this and um i thought that was a, a really effective tool uh, mm-hmm. to get people to shift their thinking but then uh, it felt kind of bad because it's like well actually most of the people that are hearing this aren't going to be acting on it and now they're going to have the seed in their head about the fact that that's what's going to happen to them so if actually if anything i've actually just sort of i've, I've hindered them in some way because i've just just highlighted and exposed what they're going to be getting into right and uh so i i kind of stopped saying it you know because it felt wrong to sort of condition people into action using fear right and so there's me sort of having that internal dialogue with myself and changing my behavior about it and then not long after that you know a few months after that we have this thing with the pandemic and the lockdown and now the government's doing even just that but like times a thousand do you know what i mean it's like and 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 over much longer time periods so it's like this is this is fundamental psychology isn't it and that people tend to move away from pain and suffering far more or the more motivated to move away from pain and suffering than they are to move towards health or lack of suffering or uh, or pleasure yeah and that's not for everybody obviously everybody's different but generally speaking that that's that that's true or it seems to be true that's what you know basic psychology says in fact psychology changes all the time in terms of our understanding of psychology but uh, that that seems to be the uh, the situation and and that's why marketing is so effective when it's about moving away from fear and and why why highlighting people's fears is an effective marketing tool and playing upon them. It just jumps straight on the nerve, doesn't it? It's like stamp, stamp, stamp. Yeah, yeah. But I have, I have issues. Here and now, pain is now. You know, and everybody's in the now, really. We're all uh, thinking about what's going on now. And what we think, what, what's going on now is the pain that we're in and why we can't have the pleasure that we want to have. Um, in that sense, though, I don't think life's really any different during lockdown than it was before lockdown. Mm. Because most people during lockdown, well, remember, it's a middle class white man thing, really. Um, and you're, you're forced to stay in your own home, right? So you end up sort of crying at 11 o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, missing people that you didn't even like. Mm-hmm. So all this weird stuff going on because your liberty's taken away. 
right? Physical, your liberty is physically taken away. It's like, okay, well, if you had a choice to go to work in a job you hate or stay at home and sit and drink beer in the garden, what would you rather do? Mm -hmm. Go for the garden and the beer, personally, right? <laughs> um, if I had the choice, yeah. I, mind, I wouldn't mind doing both at the same time. I could do both quite easily, as long as I was I suppose. And some of my best work has been done when I've been at parties with friends. Oh, boy. It's like, if we could just, like, get rid of this social stigmatism, like, if you could just let me have a few beers and they just put me in the clinic, <laughs> get much better results. Because your friends are the only people that let you do that, right? Yeah. They're not paying for it. It's just like they've got an ache or a pain at the party. And it's like, there's something about when you... Especially alcohol, you know, how it removes people's filters, right? Yeah. Why people with exuberant behavior, right? Yeah. It removes the filter about, about how capable I think I am. It's like, well, I'm not sure. I've never felt this before. This, this isn't behaving in the usual way. I don't really understand this. It's like, that's all gone. It's like, wow, this is different. Right, how can we work that one? Um, but of course, if you turn up to an appointment with an osteopath who stinks of beer, you're going to be like, no way. It doesn't go down <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's not that I'm advocating osteopathy to get drunk. That's why medics must uh, use um, other mind-altering mechanisms than alcohol. Yeah. Well, or they just use gin. Sorry? Drink gin. Drink gin, okay. I was thinking LSD or... Uh... <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? The thing with the psychedelics is it's like... You, you can't really function in psych. Like we talk about alcohol removing your filter, like so it's not keeping you caged into your self-limiting beliefs. But psychedelics is like a whole different ballgame. It's like, well, yeah, you say that, but th there's a whole movement now. Not that I'm very aware of it, but there is a movement around microdosing of things like LSD, cannabis, cocaine, even all sorts of mind-altering drugs. But but doing it at a dose which doesn't elicit the uh, the traditionally traditional effects of these compounds yeah. but they can be allegedly uh, quite enhancing of cognitive and mental functions oh i can believe that yeah. <laughs> i know that's true um I, I i would still be apprehensive see if i'm if i'm if i'm coming at things from like the normal walking around the town going to the shops picking the kids up from school sort of mentality then i'm not going to my practitioner or my accountant if he's whacked out on mushrooms or you know i might do if he was on cocaine because cocaine just makes people very 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 busy and so yeah. they have productivity but they're actually just going around in circles but again these are these are kind of the well-known effects of these drugs like cocaine or you know lsd but they also when give you microdose them it's a completely different pharmacological effect that's true but wouldn't you still be raising an eyebrow about the quality of the services this person can produce if they're under the influence of illegal Only drugs because of our stigma that we we stigmas that we have around these things and the use of them yeah and i'm not advocating it by the way i'm just playing devil's advocate now to your uh, your yeah. objection well, I'm definitely interested. I'm certainly interested in the use of psychedelics as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool for therapy, not just for people that are going through emotional or psychological trauma, trauma um, but also in, just in terms of personal development, because, you know, the biggest thing that holds you back from development in life is yourself, right? Ambitions. So, uh, yeah, your self-limiting beliefs, things that you've learned from other people or maybe opinions you've had about yourself because you felt you weren't pretty enough or clever enough or whatever. 
and so opportunities come your way, but you don't resonate with them. You just bat it off as something that somebody else would do because they're better than you or cleverer than you. It's like, well, actually, no, that opportunity's come to you. you. You could act on it. But you would never do that if you were feeling... Now, you go through life, say you're bullied at school, right, and you carry that pain with you all the way through your childhood and adolescence, and now you're into your young adulthood, and you've never really engaged with the world because you've always been protected. You've always put yourself at the back of the class. You were never out there. You never got on stage. You never did public speaking. You never challenged yourself. You were always a victim. Um, you know, now how much more difficult is it for you to get out in the world, right? But my experiences of using psychedelics is all of that stuff dissolves. Like the second that you realize that this is starting to do something, all of that goes, your whole identity is stripped away over who you think you are mm -hmm. because it's a bit like trying to know everything about everything. You can't. The only thing you can learn, know about is the experiences that you've had, which if they've been filtered through trauma, you can't see outside that filter. Yeah. And, and, and psychedelics take that filter away and all of a sudden you realize how, how wonderfully uh refreshing and uplifting it is to realize that you are a cosmic being and i mean that not in a sense of hippie fairy man i mean in the sense mm -hmm. that we are living in space yeah we're not just on the planet we're not just in this country in this economy it's way bigger mm -hmm. um, we always forget that in our you know everyday filter we never acknowledge that in our everyday filter but wow you know how much more uplifting and, and, and invigorating is it to to be able to lay down on the grass and look up at night and actually see the stars and realize that this is infinite. I mean, a way that mind altering experience is available to all of us. If, if, a, if a, a hallucinogen can, can do that to us, you know, change, then we can do it to ourselves. It's all there inside us already. Yeah. We just have to give ourselves the opportunity to do that. Whether it is, as you say, just going outside and lying on your back and staring at the stars and thinking, wow, you know, I'm part of this and the feeling that you get from that, even just saying that now, you know, to you over a computer screen, you get that feeling inside you of going, blimey, that's huge. You know, and that's mind altering. It's truly mind altering. Yeah. So, you know, we can access these things without the, the mind altering drugs. It's just harder and it's harder sure. to sustain it. And, and you have to perhaps be more deliberate about it, but, but you can do it as one. But, uh, and I think the other factor, you know, why I'm not necessarily advocating microdosing of uh, hallucinogens and other mind-altering drugs is we don't know how to control it. And, and the problem with these things is they can become so seductive that you, know, you take it one day and you have a great experience. You achieve more. You, you, you're more creative than you've ever been. And so you do it the next day as well. And then you do it the next day and then you do it the next day. And before you know it, your body hasn't had time to recover. And I, you know, I think one thing that I'm more aware of these days is that responses to stress and you know, any, any activity, you need to have rest time. You need to have recovery time. Your body can't sustain any kind of activity over a long, long period of time. You need to have the downtime to recover. And so you have to have that discipline. If you're going to take things like mind-altering drugs, you have to have the discipline not to take them. Yeah, it's well, well, it's a case of have you got it or has it got you? 
Mm, absolutely. Using it or is it using you? I would say with the psychedelics, that kind of takes care of itself. There's, there's, there's never anything about a psychedelic experience which is addictive. It's not, it's not something you do for fun. It's, it, it, it's like uh, if you go through a course of a day, you, you have thoughts to yourself about things which would be really engaging and really pleasing and really uplifting. Mm. It's like, wow, Eureka, I've got to go. And there'll be other thoughts about the things that maybe you've done in your life that flash up that remind you how horrible and how yeah. poisonous you can be. But um, I mean, addiction's a particular thing when it comes to um, drugs like that. You know, there are biochemical changes that happen in the body that cause addiction yeah. and cause you to need to take more of it as well because of desensitization. Yeah. Microdosing shouldn't, in theory, lead to that because you're taking smaller doses, but they will shift your biochemistry. I mean, if you know, by definition, we're talking about mind altering, that's, that's changing your neurology, that's changing the biochemistry of your brain. And if you take that, you know, on day two, you've started it from a different place. You've, you've taken it again. You've shifted your biochemistry again. And then you do it on day three, you shift your biochemistry again until you're at a completely different place. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that's not sustainable and leads to long-term damage or damage maybe is too strong a word, but long-term changes, which maybe you don't want. But on day one, you don't know that. Day one, you just buzz in. Yeah, we're gonna cook and the kids' bath and everything else. It's great. <laughs> Woo! And then you go to bed and lay down, and you can hear your heart going. All goes through your mind. Crikey, there's only so many beats in a lifetime. And I'm just mine up right here. Okay. Probably wasn't a microdose, Paul. Well, there's a difference, I think, between the psychogenics and the amphetamines, right? It's the stuff mm -hmm. like cocaine and speed and weeds. I mean, they're the really productive stuff. They're also the things that give people, they give people the edge, right? Like most people, like if somebody's like acting really aggressive to you or they're bullying you, you would have this process of feeling victimized and then probably a bit intimidated and scared. And then you would have this gradual sort of build up of resistance. You build up this hatred. You build up, you'd be thinking about ways. How can I stop this? How can I exploit this? How can I fight back? And there's a process going through there, much like a grieving process or a, you know, from the, from the victim to the hero moment, right? Yeah. But there's a process, and that usually involves communicating with people that you can trust, like family, friends, building a network to deal with this thing. What you find with amphetamines and cocaine, you go from, well, you wouldn't be intimidated by anybody, because if anybody said anything to you that was in any way derogatory or putting you down, yeah straight for the jugular uh you just find their weak spot immediately and because your brain's operating on a much higher level you're reading body language and facial expressions on another level mm. you can see people's vulnerabilities you go straight for the jugular and you take them out of the game you don't just get them to be quiet you get them to leave the room you know and think about what they're doing and don't come back here again you've got that aggressive edge it's a killer edge from a management perspective who wouldn't want a team of managers like that decisive clear action it might be wrong but it's all right if it's wrong it's wrong you can come back you want confident people making those decisions mm -hmm. so that's a really strange one but then it, like you say it takes you away from your legitimate genuine true self a little bit each day and then yeah. before you go down the slippery road and it's highly mm -hmm. addictive right so psychedelics there's no addictive component you wouldn't want to have a psychedelic experience if you wouldn't want to you, you might want to have 
maybe one a year. Mm -hmm. You sort of run one route, route around and clear out the cobwebs. Stop, stop society and all of our ridiculous laws as human beings. We, we kind of now get what we want. We're so far left. We've sort of broken through to the other side where it's like, well, we're totally free and, and peaceful. We're a totally social you know, society, but you can say what you want as long as it's what we tell you to say. Yeah. As you can't say Mr. or Mrs. anymore. You've got to ex refer to me as a, someone who is capable of menstruating but grows a beard. You know what I mean? There's so many, we've gone so far the other way. We've sort of yeah. smashed and right again. And uh, without realising, which I think is quite, quite funny. Well, not funny at all, really, but um, interesting. And so, uh, yeah, before that you know, sort of life lets its weeds sort of grow into your mind and keeps you entrenched in this really compared to what all of our genetic potential is if you think about how functional human beings can be like if you talk about high achievers and how productive they are with their time right uh, any human being is capable of that yeah we're all capable of it right unless you've got holes in your brain from you know alcohol and drug abuse and you know maybe there's some various neurological diseases but if you've got a brain you could be just as high performance as, as warren buffett or you know people like that but we, but we aren't, you know, the vast majority of us, 99.9% .9 aren't. It's only our self-limiting beliefs that do that. So I think that's really useful. If you, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in the use of psychedelics in terms of helping people develop, right? Because whether you believe in existentialism or not, right, this, is, this thing about life is just this big hard thing that you have to get through. Now you're here, you have to go through these processes. And there's usually pain and suffering and challenge all along the way. And that's just from within your own creation. That's not before you hit other people's tragedy woes and so is and feel the accidents that are caused by us, right? So yeah. surely the role of, of, of learning and self-development is to try and lessen that suffering. You can't get rid of it, but it is to try and lessen it and make it the best that it can be and as enjoyable as it can mm -hmm. be. Hopefully from your mistakes, your children will learn. To grow uh, from the suffering rather than to suffer from the suffering, isn't it? If it's possible, yeah. Well, it's always possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I know people who suffer immensely and, and nothing but better for it. You know, and um, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm quite. It's funny. He's talking about psychedelics again here. I've had I've had two yeah, or three. We talked about it before. <laughs> but I've had two or three conversations this week. There was one day I had two patients, one after the other, both asked me, "Have you ever had psychedelic experiences?" Right. Because I'm not worried about anything. Because I'm being honest with people. I'm like, yeah. It's quite a lot of experiences I've had. So, um, but with regards to the psychedelics, I was really interested in, in what it was like, you know, because people are really intrigued, but they're also really scared. Mm. It makes total sense because, you know, if you believe what you are told to believe about psychedelics, then it's really scary, really dangerous. Don't do it. You're going to die. It's like, well, actually, I've never met anybody who's had any health implications as a result of psychedelics at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might feel like you're dying when you're having it. You might feel like you're sort of closing off from the world and, and sort of really going into yourself. And, but then you're into somewhere else. It's like going into a dream. And um, there's, nothing, there's nothing deathly about that at all. Uh, and it's like it would be impossible to imagine how if you could look at how, how the whole COVID lockdown has changed the way that people think and the way that businesses work pre-lockdown if you said how would you like your business to go you couldn't really have predicted 
if you if, you, if you're changing and benefiting from it now right like, like like you are and like i am and like i know a lot of people are like a lot of people saying how bad it is you know i'm doing great mm-hmm. with it and it's not you know there's still be people that are struggling right mm-hmm. um, but i suspect there'll probably be people that have been paying too much attention to what the government's saying right um, well, that's, that's, yeah you're right it's, it's part of the problem isn't it but just as it's impossible to predict how you could change it for the better and lockdown has shown you a way forwards that's way better than you could have imagined mm. you can't possibly imagine the, the sort of experiences and things that you bring back from a dream right but you, you can imagine it can't you and it is possible to imagine it it's just that most people don't because of their inhibitions and their fears as, as we've been talking about it, it would have been possible to imagine a world in which not a world in which you couldn't leave the house because you know, why would you imagine that but a world in which you delivered your services products and services in a completely different way yeah you know, which is what we're, we're talking about with the lockdown that's what you know, businesses have had to do yeah yeah sure and it would have been possible to to imagine that um, and it is possible to imagine delivering your services without delivering any Bullshit. Not that I imagine you did too much of that anyway, but you know, you, you've reached a different plane of that now. And oh, me, oh, I'm full of it. I'm still full of it. I have to empty it out every morning. Well, <laughs> any regular listener to this show will know that. <laughs> um, but anyway, what was I saying? Uh, so it would have been imag- possible to imagine, you know, your your practice without that and being completely honest with people and open and transparent and. Uh, but we don't it's possible but we we don't because of all sorts of you know weeds as you've called it and they, they get in the way the filters and the, the busyness of it all and, and everything else and it's a huge opportunity that we've been given yeah. to look at life and the world in a completely different way yeah, yeah absolutely and, and so it's, it's it, it i think what you also in it, to add to what you're saying there is that even if you were capable of imagining it you know operating in a way that was clear and full of it you might have that realization and that awakening and you might take action on it right but then everybody that you're coming into contact with is still full of it because that's the way the world was right but now they've gone through this experience where they've been really if they've been had they've had the They've had the reality, like the, the, for, for a very brief moment, we were suddenly thrust into a world where, you know, this could go down really badly. Do you know what I mean? Like we didn't know that the food transportation was going to keep coming. Yeah. yeah. We now know it's because idiots were just panic buying. It's like, I need this for my family because it's better than your family, right? Mm. Or look at me, aren't I clever? Because I've got all the toilet paper and you've got none. It's like, well, no, you, 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 you're an idiot because like now everybody else is going to suffer because you have greedily gone ahead. You yeah. have reacted through as a result of the weeds and the conditioning of what society is, what capitalist society has thought you is, is acceptable. Mm-hmm. So it's acceptable to inflict, to inflict suffering on other people. We're not really evolving here. In fact, if anything, we're devolving. We're going mm-hmm. back here, right? Um, but for a brief moment, it was like everything was silent, everything was dark, everybody was scared, everybody was like petrified about the fact that we're not going to get food. Like, so you go four or five days without any food in a supermarket, 
stuff's about to get thrown down. It's really serious. Like this is not going to end well. People aren't going to be nice to each other. Mm -hmm. You might get communities that are looking after each other, your next door neighbors. If you've got aunts or uncles or grandparents around, then obviously you've got allies there, but hunger is going to change the nature of your relationships. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so if you're lucky enough to get something to eat, you've now got to face the proposition of keeping it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the harsh reality of existence that every one of our ancestors has had to go through in the wilderness. It's like this was suddenly just brought back to us. It's like, wow. And I feel all these parts of me, like it could even be the DNA awakening and unlocking to adapt to this change of environment. It's like, that was nice. I like that. That's good. That was like a poof, right? Because I kind of feel not completely prepared. Obviously, I'm far from well equipped to deal with complete you know an utter removal of, of our culture and society but at least i'm thinking about it and at least i've started to make preparations and at least i'm in my mind i'm already preparing for how can i how can i get that tin of baked beans out of mrs jenkins handbag without punching her in the face how can i how can i use my skill and crafty to to steal as a kill because it's like it's going to go down and it's going to be bad right but Stealing, if you're going to choose, is probably better than killing, right? If you're going to get, if you're going to commit a crime it's between theft or murder, you probably want to go with the theft and then deal with the potential murders further down the line, right? Cause, but that's still going through my mind, through my head, and I dare say that at some level, that's gone through everybody's mind about the fact that this is not safe anymore, right? This is this is element of whether it's whether it's you're worried about you're not able to provide for your family which is a normal worry for most men, I think, in this society. It's like, if you feel like you can't provide for your family, you go and jump off a bridge or you hang yourself. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's normal behavior for some people in society. So if you can come to terms with that, you then say, right, okay, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I, uh, can't, I can provide for my family, but now I'm really, really, really scared of this killer disease because I'm being told that I have to be. Mm -hmm. you know? And yet you can't actually show me any evidence of why I should be scared of this. Yeah, you're just telling me to be scared of it, which brings me quite interesting to uh, the PPE scenario, right? It's become really obvious for me. PPE is not about effective stopping of the spread of disease at all, because we all know if you're in the world of science, how ineffective the protective clothing is, right? What's really interesting, there was osteopathic forums talking about the research for PPE, right? Right, so it, it, this is something I've been looking into on a fairly superficial level. So I've probably spent about an hour looking, right, whilst I'm doing other things online. So if I'd really dedicated a, a couple of hours to finding it, it's quite an interesting challenge. See if you can find any credible research on the effectiveness of PPE on the internet. Right. Right, and you'd be alarmed. Right, you'd be alarmed that there's nothing there. Mm. And you know, if that runs in concordance with the censorship, like, issues that I've got with the internet, right? So it's all very well Google saying or Facebook saying it's our company, we don't want that on our company. Well, that's fine, but you're providing a platform for people to give freedom of speech, right? So, you know, I don't think you should offer a platform for people to air their views on freedom of speech for 25 years without an issue. And then all of a sudden this one day, you suddenly start censoring it and, and canceling everything that everybody's got to say off. It should be there right. for everybody to find everything, right? But now if you're censoring the research, behind the effectiveness of PPE, why would you take that stuff down? Well, I was wondering that. Well, if it supported what you say, you'd want people to go and find it and say, oh yeah, that's really useful. Yeah. But if it didn't support what you said, then you want to take that down so that people can't come to that equation, right? 
So what's it? But what's it not supporting? If it if it doesn't support the position that PPE is protective, by definition of its name, yeah. Then why take it down? Because all you're saying is that we don't need PPE because it's not doing any good. Precisely. So you know that's a good thing, isn't it? That you know that that solves the problem of um, a PPE shortage. It solves yeah. the government's problem of where well, you didn't do enough to protect doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals in, in nursing homes, solves that problem completely. Goes yeah. away if, if, if the research says that PP is not effective. Yeah. Well, you, that's, yeah. That's, you know, you would take, taking it down from that point of view doesn't seem to make sense to me. If the research says that PPE is effective <laughs> and we've known it for a long time, then, you know, I would have thought that take, taking that research down now makes sense from a government point of view because of everything I've just said it's the counter argument so so that must mean that if you can't find evidence online that PPE of, of the effectiveness of PPE it must mean that PPE is effective I think I've just proven it <laughs> well, you might be right I mean as ever I get the counter argument but my simplistic way of looking at it is that if there is evidence to say that PPE is not effective and people will just go there, find it, share it, and then everyone says, well, if it's not effective, if it's like trying to catch a, a grain of dust with a tennis racket, you know, the thing is too small for you to catch it, yeah. right? So what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, mean I'm, I haven't been to source documents, you know, where, where the, the, the trials have been, where I've, I've researched the trials that have been conducted on this. But I've seen research and evidence that shows that there is some effectiveness of PPE. You know, yeah. you almost say, well, why, why would surgeons wear PPE if it wasn't effective at stopping um, bacteria and viruses from being spread? You know, same with gloves, masks. There must be some effectiveness there, you would think. But I haven't been to the source research. But, you know, there is... A bit of an assumption. Well, exactly. So I'm making an assumption that would need to be tested. Um, but you know your comment about the virus being too small so it can get through things like a mask that is true but most of the transmission of the virus isn't the virus itself it's the virus in a droplet in a you know on our breath on spittle as we're talking yeah and that would be trapped by the hook by the you know the mesh of the mask Okay, so basically when people are coughing or sneezing and they're ejecting this stuff into the atmosphere, that might be the way that it gets spread. If the virus is stuck on the thing and then you sneeze 10 feet over there and it hits someone and they've got the virus, yeah? Yeah, and it's spreading the air then, I guess, on the droplets. And, yeah, um, but the virus is going to be in the air anyway. But again, more likely to be in the air in a droplet than it is in, in the air. Well, okay, so... Maybe the protective equipment will reduce the stuff that's stuck to droplets in the air, okay? But it's not going to stop the virus. It's not going to stop the virus from coming out. So what we're saying is that PPE, a mask, isn't going to be 100% effective. But if it reduces the viral load in your vicinity, you know, if yeah. you're, you're infected, then you will reduce the transmission somewhat. So what we really need then is, is, is the paper, the evidence, the research, which we can sit down and critique and say, okay, so this is actually true. Yeah, this is the effect, this is the test, this is how they did it. And, you know, 
and then we can look at it. So if we can find that, then we can critique it, and then we can say PPE is effective to a degree. Yeah, at least one of those papers. I'd have to go back and dig it out. But uh... if you can, because if anyone can, you'd be able to. I reckon I can't find it in there. Right. It's almost like it's just gone, right? So let's assume that it's somewhat effective, but it's still not stopping the problem. It's not 100% effective, but if you can reduce the R number, you know, this, this mythical R number, yeah. then you reduce the infection rates and uh, yeah, the transmission rates. Yeah, so there's a lot of energy here. There's a lot of umming and ahhing and energy and tracking and testing and all this kind of stuff. Whereas if you just, if you could just accept the fact that PPE wasn't effective, just for a second, just entertain the notion that it wasn't effective, um, then you've now got a whole load of energy and activity and money and what resources which is being spent on stuff which is actually not doing what you think it is. But we have to do something, right? Because we can't do nothing. Mm. There's just this ridiculous notion that this isn't a natural process, it's just gonna happen and then we're out the other side of it. Oh, no, 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 we've, we've got to get in and try and push the tide back. The tide's coming and we've got to push it back. It's like, hello, it's the tide, yeah? The only winner here <laughs> is the tide. Yeah, and you putting in all these like, efforts is like pushing back the tide, right? You focus on it. But then it struck me, like, with regards to the practitioners, osteopaths, chiropractors, physiotherapists, talking to my insurance company about it, they've confirmed that PPE is not effective at stopping the spread of the disease. But the reason that some companies have, not mine by the way, but the reason some companies have to insist on having PPE is that, for example, if I, if I was to do something and I made a mistake and I injured someone, there would usually be a, you know, obviously a complaint, which I would have to facilitate and help through, and then it would be a hearing. And then due to the legal you know, if, as long as I followed all the legal procedures, then my insurance company will pay the damages. That's mm -hmm. how insurance should work, right? As long as you're ticking the boxes, yep. you'll pay out. Right. So an insurance company has now got an opportunity to put another box on all their list of criteria in order for you to be covered, which says you've got to wear PPE. Yeah. Even though they know it's not effective, they've now got an opportunity to get out of paying mm -hmm. insurance policy. Plus, if you know, because you're in the insurance company, and you're being told that the government is creating all these new guidelines that say that actually PPE is empirical. We have to have it. It stops the spread of disease. We've got to do it. Even though we know it doesn't, but the government's saying that we do. Mm -hmm. Well, now if you've got 500 quid to invest, might be a good idea to start looking at protective equipment, right? Because that's going to be in the use and circulation for as long as this fiasco goes on for, right? So that's, maybe that's just an opportunity because I'm thinking about investments. So I'm thinking, well, okay. Yeah, okay, so it's this ridiculous concept, but now if you've got a few quid to invest, if you're an insurance company or an insider, hey presto. And so that, again, right, leads me to think, well, if you're in politics and you've got the power to create these legislations, like with regards to the Royal, Royal Mail or the Post Office, mm -hmm. when that got privatised, the politicians' relatives benefited like immediately. The second that bet and got pressed, they were millionaires overnight, right? Because <laughs> they knew it was coming. And so they made all the relative changes and investments to begin with. And it strikes me that if we've got policies that are being made over stuff which is actually ineffective for what we're being told to do, and plus we're being told to do it by people that aren't wearing it, mm -hmm. and lockdown rules, in order to go and have extramarital fun, right? Then why should we follow the guidelines given to us by lying, hypocritical, 
incompetent adulterers. And why are they in charge? Like, why, if, if that was my son who was doing that, I would be ashamed. I certainly wouldn't want him calling the shots and telling other people how to live their life. That's not, <laughs> I would be like, you need to sort yourself out, boy. You have to fix your problems. You have to grow and develop and become a decent human being. One that's capable of setting an example for people. It wouldn't be your son because it's like father, like son, isn't it? So the, the father's as bad as the son in this case. Well, crikey. Probably. Without, well, you're allegedly. Not. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> uh, if I'm to say which I'm not, then uh, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the whole thing about the PPE, I suspect, is just a it's an insurance scam, and uh, secondly, it's a way of people to create little pockets of investment because they know the rules that are coming, and um, and who isn't going to agree to another lockdown? If you think you know, all the billionaires have benefited quite handsomely anyway, everybody with money to invest, everybody that's got money already is going to benefit from another lockdown, right? And so the protective equipment things is going to keep rolling out because we're going to have another lockdown because this mm. disease is so terrible and, 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 and problematic. And it's like, actually, you just, if you just switch your screen off, if you just switch the screen off and just go for a walk, you'll see how, how happy people are to engage in conversations and they'll still keep distance. Yeah. But that's not a bad thing anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, Sometimes it's offensive when people come up and they pop up in your personal space. It's like, keep the personal space, have the personal space. But it's going to be interesting, I think, isn't it? I mean, we, we in business, when you're one of the things that I remember learning about early on as a as a manager, you, when you're learning about body language, about um, managing people, it's one of one of the lessons is about cultural differences in in personal space. Right. You know, in this country, we have you know the personal space is probably about a meter. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but if you if you get much closer than a meter from someone, then they start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. You get closer than that, you get even more uncomfortable. But in other countries, you know the culture is quite different. You know that in Japan, for example, they they get quite close to each other because their culture is that personal distance is a lot shorter. And I think one of the things that's going to be interesting here is that probably around the world, personal spaces are going to get wider. For you know, it might become a, a cultural norm that you know now half a meter isn't far enough. You've got to be far further away from each other than uh, than we've ever had to be. Until we get to a point where it's actually physically impossible, and then we know we have to get rid of some people, and that sort of feels like <laughs> you know the lifeboats from the Titanic. You know, everybody's clawing to try and get in one, and it's like actually it's yeah. going to stink. So now you've got to make the choice about who you chuck out of this boat. <laughs> when really you should just chuck yourself out the boat. Um, however, what's interesting about all that is the fact that you've got these changing kind of these changing components of our culture, right? Dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that the environment is changing and the way that people's behaviour is changing creates changes in people right so i had a patient this week who's been a regular patient for a couple of years sort of comes in every couple of months for, for maintenance to test it because we get really good results but due to various reasons which i can't really explain uh here it uh the tensions come back in again quite, quite consistently so she gets good relief for about a month or so and then she struggles for about a month and then she comes back in because in her mind that's that's good enough for her 
But during lockdown, I haven't seen her. And she came in for the first time on Thursday, yesterday. And I said, so how are you doing? How are you getting on? Thinking, you know, she's got a nervous disposition and she's anxious about a lot of things. I thought this would be a nightmare. She says, you know, I haven't felt this good in years. She says, it's going to sound really weird. She says, but lockdown totally suits me. Like, you know, it's like it, it, as soon as the stress and the crazy chaos became in the foreground for her life, she suddenly slotted right into that and she could function and operate. And now she's operating on a level that she probably never operated in her whole life. Mm. And so I thought, oh, well, I wonder how many people are like that, you know, come off the hour, come off the man, right? So, you know, you're sitting in, in Sibby Street and maybe you've got, you know, six-figure incomes and maybe nine-figure incomes. Who knows? You, you're sitting there and everything's going well for you. You're chugging through this materialistic capitalist society and it's all working for you. And maybe you feel the holes of your your purpose in life because you're just selling, I don't know, I don't know, uh, you could be selling balloons, right? The balloons, probably quite a lot of purpose in balloons because people love balloons. Nice to play with balloons. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> If you, if you were, if your business was to go bust and that product was removed from our culture, we wouldn't collapse as a society, right? Okay, so um, uh, there are just things that some people might be making a lot of money from, but don't have a lot of purpose, and they might be able to deny or, or, or quash that feeling of, of, of emptiness because mm-hmm. they're driving around in a Lamborghini and they can distract themselves with skiing holidays and they can go and you know, yeah. I, prostitutes for 50 grand a piece or whatever you could do things to distract yourself from the banality of the existence right mm-hmm. but but you know when the stress kicks right and and the chips are down some people step forward and some people step back and I, and it was interesting to have that sort of contrast that you know a lot of people in this epidemic or I won't call it a, it's not a pandemic, right? It's not anywhere near a pandemic level, right? <laughs> in terms of definitions, this isn't a pandemic, right? But a lot of people just step back and they go into the hole and then they're now waiting to be told what to be done by the government and they're waiting for all this stuff. They're not thinking for themselves. And that's a gradual conditioning process going over months and months and months and months and months. And if that carries on for a year, you come out of the other end of that tunnel, a completely different person with completely different values. You know, it's like prisoners of war, yeah? But some people step forward, and these are usually the people that struggle to operate when everything's nice and namby pamby and everything's easy and everything's free and everything. Da, 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 da. They kind of can't function this thing. And I thought, well, what's more practical? Would you rather feel like you're useless for your whole life? But when that one incident came where nobody else could handle it, you stepped up and managed to take a leadership role. Or would you rather do well for 99% of the time, right? When it's all easy, but no, as soon as that level went up, you cracked and went back. What's better for a human being? Yeah, well, and you can put it in that frame of stepping up, stepping back, taking leadership role or not. But you know, maybe it's, it's simpler than that. Maybe it's about you know when lockdown comes, people have been released from the pressure that society puts on us. You know, this is the the pressure to keep up with the Joneses, the pressure to have the car that is as good as our next door neighbor uh, the pressure to buy new clothes and go shopping every week um you know the pressure to watch tv so you can talk with your friends about it you know all of these pressures as small as they may be they're there because that's the way our society is and and then with lockdown we were released from that we didn't have to go around and visit 
our neighbours every day. We couldn't. We didn't have to go shopping every every week for new clothes, whether we needed them or not. None of these pressures were there anymore, whether we see them as pressures or not. And and for some people, that would have been a release. And and so I can I can imagine your um, your patient maybe one of the things or for some patients it is or some people it is about being released from those pressures and not having them anymore yeah totally which kind of just sort of it's another way of saying about the fact you're getting rid of all that bs you know what i mean it's like, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Problem, it? yeah you talk about balloons and superfluous products in society you know whether balloons are fun or not as you say it's not going to change the world if you can't have balloons anymore um but it's that same thing of you know, what other banalities, what other superfluous products, experiences are we all put impression upon ourselves to have that yeah. we don't need to have, that we can just go out into the countryside and walk and lie down in the grass and watch the stars. And as long as we've got our basic needs of food, shelter, warmth, covered yeah. for, and you know, people that we love that we can be with. Yeah what else do you need completely you know and it's so true isn't it because uh there's there's like how many other rabbit holes are we being conditioned to go down mm. right in order to sustain our economic growth so actually it's like like, like i said yesterday like i had a ridiculously long day it was almost like a 12-hour day which might be normal for some shift workers but it's not like i used to work on security and do a 12-hour shift mm -hmm. Right, where it's like just it's just a long shift, and you can do stuff to entertain yourself. It's like twelve hours of engaging with people and listening and understanding and trying to work out what's going on with this body's muscular system and nervous system and skeletal system, and why aren't they doing the exercises? And what's really going on here? Is this physical or emotional? And which hat do I have to put on? It's a constant process, and you know, I made quite a got a, got a lot of revenue yesterday, but it didn't feel good when I finished. Uh, it didn't feel good. I felt empty. I, I'd missed dinner with the kids and, you know, I had a couple of hours to myself before I went to bed and you know, that just wasn't what I wanted to do. That's not how I set up my ideal perfect day at the beginning of lockdown. When I set myself out, what would I like my ideal day to become? I'd already overshot that to facilitate the growth because it's like, well, demand is here. It's difficult for me to say no when people are in pain. Um, and plus, you know, if we have another lockdown, it might all dry up again. So let's make hay while the sun shines, you know? So, but that now kind of smells like I'm just going back to how it was before, where it's like, well, actually, I've, I've, I've never, I've never realised I've been materially, materially orientated. Like, so for me, I don't want a Ferrari. I just want a car that doesn't break down or drop oil on other people's driveways. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like that's that's the sort of thing that I'm looking for, was looking for. Whereas you're yeah. right, like, lockdown just takes all the pressure away. It's like it doesn't matter how expensive your car is, you're not going anywhere in it. That's right. And now that massive precious thing that you enjoy is sitting there and you're probably still paying for it. Mm -hmm. And that's money out of your account. So that thing that you is now just a drain, you know? It's like it's, be careful with these things, right? right? So yeah, that's the, and again, like but then, you know, driving back from, from Morpeth then doing the work down in the clinics down there, the, the A1's, you know, it's just back to normal with regards to the volume of traffic. Yeah. Also the behaviors, you know, people are always quick to overtake. You know, there was times during lockdown, I'd be the only car going up and down to Morpeth, it yeah. felt like. You'd never it's see another car. An <laughs> and it would drop down to 50 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, oh, lovely. It's like I've got a whole 
park to myself, you know, it's like, there's nobody here. Yeah. Now, he's just back to sort of 80 miles an hour, trying to overtake on bends and stuff like that. And it's like, mm. so I dare say that would just go back to normal, you know, people will want to be going back to the Joneses. Well, that's I, think it, I think it will for many. For some, it'll be because they want that. For some, it will be because they just not thought about it, I guess, and, and they just go back to normal because, back to normal, because of um, you know the conditioning, as you've called it, uh, and it just would just be conditioned to do that. But not that's not the case for everybody. It doesn't have to be the case for everybody, and hopefully there'll be some people that it's not the case for, and they they find a better way of living for themselves. The better way of living for some people might be to go back to that. But the better way of living for others might be to to you know have a more of a lockdown type existence. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That the physical lockdown set us free mm. from the usual pressures that keep us trapped and confined into working as hours, doing stuff we don't want to do to make other people rich. So that, that actually, in a way, having our physical liberty removed actually set us free. Yeah, and that's that. That's I suppose wasn't to be. It shouldn't be a surprise, really, when you think about the the songs of slavery. Mm. You know. You can take away my liberty, but you can't take away my freedom. You can yeah. hurt me and, and you can inflict all kinds of problems with my physical body, but you can't stop me thinking what I'm thinking. You can't, you know, and then it comes back to Victor Frankl. You can do what you want to people's physical liberties, but you can't stop them from choosing their responses. Yeah. However, it turns out that you can affect people's responses. You don't actually tell them what their response should be. You just scare them living bejesus out of them for a few yeah. months and they just start doing what you want. That's really that's right. Yeah, uh, you know, that's part of the conditioning as well, isn't it? To keep the system going and uh, whether that's right or wrong, it's... Uh, but, you know, you've had your mind opened in a, in a particular way and other people have had their experiences from all of this and, uh, and that's part of the rich tapestry of life. And interestingly enough, if there was ever an opportunity to have another psychedelic experience, it would have been during lockdown, right? Yeah. Because no, there's no responsibilities for me. I haven't got a function on a normal level. You know, when the kids have gone to bed, it would have been the most... And you could probably go out for a walk somewhere in the woods and not bump into anybody and have to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The supply but, chain was a bit affected though, wasn't it? Well, the thing about psychedelics, especially... <laughs> It's all around us. This is the thing. It's 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 in, it's everywhere. It's just people don't know what they're looking at. Right. So you don't know where to find it. It's like, well, where 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 do I find the stuff from? It's like there, 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 and people are like really. It's like yeah, it's all around us all the time. It's just it's been so written out of our cultural norms. We don't understand how to use the stuff anymore. Yeah. But it's all around all the time. Which is another reason, like if it's abundant in nature and you've got specific receptors in your brain that are reacting to those things, suggests that at some point in our evolutionary process, we have come into contact with these things, which has just radically shifted the way that we approach things. And if you think we go from like an evolutionary common ancestor, like uh, Homo habilis or Homo erectus, you know, the first sort of origins of what you could call of human life so we're starting to incorporate fire and we're coming into an upright posture they're quite complex things to process and 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 repeat 
But I'd imagine if you took a simple life form like that and you just gave it a psychedelic experience and laid it down on its back and you can just look up at the moon and the stars, I reckon that's going to start firing off yeah. some, some evolutionary process there which would just accelerate our evolu evolution of our brain particularly. Certainly judging from what it's been doing for people with regards to the research that's done on you know, the uses of psychedelic experiences for depression and anxiety in particular. Which makes perfect sense what you would make do that because again that depression and anxiety is just it's just your filter that you're looking at every experience through that's creating because you've you've created this filter for yourself and then you take that away yeah it's not like the world has changed it's just you're not looking through that filter that's generating that fear and anxiety so you can just react to it in a more enjoyable way so yeah i mean that's in terms of of, of, of where i take my career at some point in the future yeah, that interests me. That might make an interesting investment. Psychedelics. Well, it's therapeutic use of psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. In, in a controlled scientific and medical environment, as a result of, as an as a way to access greater personal development. Yeah, um, because, like I say, you, you, there's just nothing addictive about that process. I mean, when you face demons, like really, really face demons, and so you have to understand what those demons are, and then you have to have the courage to go and face it and actually deal with it. And once you've dealt with it, it's like you don't want to keep repeating that process. You don't want to go keep going back there, you know? Deal with it and, and, and move on. And that's why there's this, this thing about the, the addictive element of, of, of these things is, is, is not what people are led to believe. It's very easy to get the psychedelics mixed up with the amphetamines. Chalk and cheese, it would be like, you know, drinking orange juice or Coca-Cola, you know, both very different experiences. Yeah. yeah. So, so. It's interesting, Gareth. I, I, I was, we've been chatting away here about things for ages, and it's just flown by today. It's, yeah. it's yeah. almost time we should wrap up and uh, yeah, leave leave, uh, leave time for a track, perhaps at the end, because <laughs> we haven't <laughs> any in the middle. <laughs> I tell you what, my takeaway is: I'm going to go and take. I'm going to go and see if I can find out and dig dig out some of Mark Twain's writings on osteopathy, because I think that would be interesting and educational. Yeah. Yeah. And it saves me having to actually sit down and think about my own marketing strategy. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. And um, I'm also really, really interested as is, is, is to how I can use my current modus operandi now as the vehicle to the next stage of growth. And I think I'm mature enough and I think I've made enough mistakes and I've learned from them in order to be able to go back into facilitating growth and giving someone an opportunity to do what I do in terms of growing an associate practice and things like that. And, and that's, that's quite exciting. And then that's the next phase in terms of getting towards the organic farm where really that, that goal is just about having a practice that's working for me yeah. in an organic environment, right? As opposed to just on an inorganic farm. Mm -hmm. There's lots of problems with that. Yeah. And, uh, and giving people access to the, to the knowledge, which I think is important because, you know, if we have another lockdown or, you know, become a regular thing or at some point when we do get to the point where it's all turned bad, right, then at some point you've done something to try and help your tribe yeah. create the goods and teach them how to keep the goods. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, big hairy audacious goal. And I think the the bit there that you slipped in was, you know, having regular lockdowns. You know, that can kind of sound scary, but you know, we've done it once. Pandora's box is open. And if you're not watching the screen, then if you're being grateful for the fact that you're alive, yeah. this lockdown just sets you free. Oh, that's right, isn't it? It's what we've been what we've been saying all all all, all show. So. Uh, Look at that opportunity coming up for everybody with multiple lockdowns, you know, every few years. Yeah. Give everyone a lockdown. Three months of the year should be in lockdown, right? The economy's just... <laughs> the whole world does it, and we don't have to worry about trade deficits because everybody's slowing down, and it's like, right. Well, and that comes back to that, using that as an analogy. It's, I talked about how the body biochemically needs to go to, through recovery periods. You go through a peak and a, you know, you've got to come down. You've got to have that rest and recovery. And you know, yeah, we, yeah. The analogy there for the economy is we need to do the same thing. And and right now what we do is we go through booms and busts. We go through the bubbles, and then the stock market crashes, and everybody goes, "Oh, doom! We're in the recession." Yeah. Right, so yeah. why not manage that situation? Why not have a a three month lockdown every year? It's almost like the, it's almost like the demands that are put on us to be productive and contribute to the economy are being terms that are dictated by people who are highly productive and want to go for the jugular. So it could be that there's some evidence of amphetamine-induced goals driven by there. <laughs> but then just as, as you would be productive on those things, you would then crash on the other side. Right. Perhaps our economy is reflective of that. It sounds very much like it, doesn't it? Well, didn't that be interesting to draw that? Yeah. Well, on that note, Gareth, we're going to up because um, I really need to get uh, get ready for the next pace and coming in. Yeah, indeed. So um, have a good week, everybody. Take care. Uh, enjoy the remnants of lockdown and the, the recovery and uh, coming back to normal. And we'll speak yeah. to you next week. And uh, what should we finish with? Uh, Three Little Birds by Bob Marley would be good. Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Nice one to appreciate. All right, then, Gareth. Thank you very much. And uh, see you next week. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Well Engaged podcast. Hope you enjoyed the conversation today. Uh, tune in again for another chat between myself and uh, my co-host, Paul Tootleman. Same time next week. Bye-bye.